If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello, and welcome to History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing, and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Ritchie, professor at Collegium Civitas Warsaw, who's extensively studied and written about Central European history. Alex is the author of the award-winning books Warsaw 1944, The Fateful Uprising, and Faust's Metropolis, A History of Berlin, both published by HarperCollins. With her deep knowledge of the city today and the pivotal episodes in its past, Alex is the ideal guide to lead us on a journey into the heritage of Poland's capital. Together we'll explore its medieval origins and its rise to political prominence in the 16th century. We'll discuss the turbulent years in which nations including Sweden and Russia dominated Warsaw and Poland as a whole. And we'll look at the legacy of the tumult, violence and oppression of the 20th century. We'll also meet some of the figures who played key roles in the development of Warsaw and discover less known places to visit for insights into its heritage. Alex, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little about your connection to Warsaw and and what you find so fascinating about the city. Well, first, 
thing is that I have absolutely no Polish relations or history at all. And when I grew up and I was born in Canada and spent a lot of my life in England. So I heard the sort of typical things about Poland, women in headscarves, digging potatoes, that kind of image is what I grew up with in, in, in Poland. So I first actually came to Poland by accident. I was uh, one of the very few Westerners who was allowed into the former East Germany, GDR. I was studying the music and life of Johann Sebastian Bach. And East Germany was so awful that I only had a single entry visa. So I decided to get, get out and do something else. Came to Warsaw. This is 1985. And whereas East Germany was very, very sort of restricted and the Stasi was everywhere and this kind of thing, Warsaw was just completely different. Uh, the atmosphere, the energy, the, the spirit was visible immediately. I mean, the city was in a terrible state, still ruins and the drabness of communism, which was universal behind the Iron Curtain. And yet, uh, I remember my first walk on uh, Krakowski Przedmieszcze, where the university is, seeing students out there giving away underground literature and openly saying how much they hated the communist regime, so unthinkable in East Germany. And that started, I suppose, a kind of a love affair with, with Warsaw in particular, Poland in general, but particularly Warsaw because the spirit of the city is something quite remarkable. We'll talk about the history of the city and where that spirit came from really now. To provide a bit of context, could you briefly outline the origins of Poland and how Warsaw sits within that history? Well, the first Neolithic you know, remnants around the Warsaw area, anyway, about 10,000 years old. And we know that there were huge movements in Europe of Slavic tribes and others moving to the West and the time of the dissolution of the Roman Empire. So these are the first sort of uh, settlements and so on. And then small settlements, fishing settlements began to grow up along the Vistula River. And Warsaw was one of them. It was part of this so-called Dukes of Mazovia. It was, therefore, the, the, the Dukes started to become rather wealthy because of their position on the Vistula River. It's an old settlement. The first official documents date back to the 12th and 13th centuries. But it's not a city that was destined to be the great capital of Central Europe of Poland or whatever. It was a bit of an upstart. It's just a part of the riverbank uh, of the Vistula River with a high escarpment. That's it. This is a fascinating topic that we talk about in a lot of these podcasts. What makes one city become great and another city languish? And sometimes there are, there are aspects that are difficult to explain. It's not to do with geography. It's to do with accidents of movements of people and trade. So when and how did Warsaw become an important regional centre? It was really, again, to do with the Mazovian dukes. The area is quite wealthy. And the Vistula River was an artery for trade, particularly into Gdansk or Danzig and into the Baltic Sea and the Hanseatic League and so on. And Warsaw was one of those outposts where grain was gathered and timber was also travelled up to the Baltic from here. Salt, which came from the salt mines around Krakow, also was transported. And so every time a ship went past, somebody made a bit of money out of it. And then, you know, the Duke's became quite well off. They started to build the first elements of Warsaw were built in what's now the old town. I mean, really built in the sense of putting stone buildings up and so on. The first foundations of what was going to become the Warsaw Castle are built. The dukes start to build some churches. So it's rather modest, but still they start to to show off and show that they're actually really quite quite important. It's all very sort of Game of Thrones. You know, you've got Boleslav the Curly versus Boleslav the sawtoothed and all these sorts of things. And these are all sort of in the mists of time, rather. They're not 
particularly important figures. But nevertheless, they, they built up Warsaw to be a functioning capital, quite wealthy, making its money on trade and agriculture in the area. And that was in the, the later medieval period, so 13th, 14th centuries. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's a regional centre of trade. It's it's a power base of the, the Dukes of Mazovia. How does it take that next step? Can you talk a little bit about how Poland the country was created and how Warsaw fit into that? Uh, as I said, the Dukes of Mazovia uh, are important in their own right, but their dynasty dies out in the uh, 1520s. And so all of a sudden, Warsaw is incorporated into what's going to become Poland. And Poland by this time has become a very, very important and powerful entity. And this is something that when we talk about, for example, the spirit of Warsaw, the spirit of Poland, something that, that a lot of people, and I certainly didn't realize when I first came here, is that in the uh, medieval and into the Renaissance periods, Poland or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is one of the great empires of Europe, vastly wealthy, and uh, the capital city was moved from Krakow to Warsaw because of the creation of the Polish-Lithuanian Union, which later becomes the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And one of the reasons is simply geography. Poland attaches itself or is attached to Lithuania, and the Lithuanian Commonwealth, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is, is created. And Poland is chosen geographically, not because it's this great city, not because it's got some amazing location or, or buildings or anything like that. It's actually a bit of an upstart capital. Uh, and it's chosen because it's, of its geography that it's more or less halfway between Krakow and Lithuania, and therefore it's seen to be a compromise capital. And that's one of the reasons that it's it becomes important. So the parliament is, is held in um, Warsaw for the first time in 1529. Uh, and then the capital is officially moved by Sigismund III Vasa, who's a Swedish king. And the capital is moved by him to Warsaw precisely for this geographical location, so close to Sweden, close to Lithuania, and in the very centre of Poland. So we're now talking 16th century still. Could you briefly explain, so why did Poland join in that union with Lithuania and where did this Swedish king come from and how did he come to be ruling? Well, one of the things that's interesting about Polish history is the fact that Polish kings were elected. And this goes again back into the mists of time from the very beginning of the creation of Poland. And it was a system that, that worked extremely well through the 15th, 16th century. And then it started to fall apart rather in the 1700s, 1800s. But the creation of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth came about because of dynastic changes. There was a young woman called Jadwiga who was heir to the throne, and she was uh, given the choice of marriage marrying a rather unpleasant Austrian or marrying a, this very pleasant uh, Lithuanian. And she chose the Lithuanian. They got married. She became King Jadwiga, even though she was actually a queen. And this was the beginning of this extraordinary union relationship that led to this enormously powerful area. And this is also a time when one has to remember that Russia, for example, really nothing much going on until Peter the Great comes along. You know, there's time of troubles and all that. Prussians, who are going to also become so difficult for the Poles, are also in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. You know, in the 1600s, it's a terrible time for those areas that are later going to become terribly difficult for Poland. And so Poland is thriving, thriving on trade and becomes a huge cultural center. It has links, for example, with Italy and, and, and a lot of Italian architects and Italian culture come to Poland. So it's a really very prosperous, wealthy, powerful place in the heart of Europe. So we have this powerful country, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Warsaw is its capital. How is Warsaw as a city 
built to reflect that? Presumably at that time, there was quite a lot of development, the power, the wealth would have been reflected in the architecture and so on. Absolutely. The, the success of kings are very interested in architecture and in showing off, for example. So, for example, the famous Sigismund column was built by Sigismund's son uh, as a kind of homage to his father. This is a, a this huge column. Anybody who's seen pictures of Warsaw, the old town area, will see this picture of this column with a figure on top who looks like a saint. It's actually the first secular image like that's ever done like this in Poland with uh, Vasa's father who'd brought the capital to Warsaw, uh, carrying a cross, but obviously not a saint. So this is a very interesting attempt to show that even though the kings have to be elected, maybe we could keep going with this dynasty for a while. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The kings were elected when there was some big dynastic change. But generally speaking, in the meantime, they followed the line of succession. So Vasa's son did indeed become king. How did a Swedish king come to the throne? This is the same issue that the monarchs were elected. And so, be sometimes there would be fights between different houses, which would end up in sorts of civil wars in Poland. But finally, they would have to choose. There were these big, huge processions to a district of Warsaw called Wola, uh, where all the nobles, the Schlachter and the nobles, the big families would come and gather on these fields and you know, with all their 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 pomp and circumstance and, and glittering robes and so on, and they would take part in this election. So it was quite an important moment. And I think there were 10, 10 elections of, of, of kings over the centuries. So it was a, a very important way of ensuring succession, but including the power of the nobles. And this is, again, something that's unusual for Europe at the time, that the noble families are actually more important in a way than the king. And this is a way of curbing the power of the king, keeping it from being an autocratic uh, place, allowed for lots of reforms, allowed for lots of freedoms. Poland was in those days known for its tolerance, for example, at the in invitation of the Jews into Poland who called the land Poline, a place where they could rest. And there was a whole mixture of other uh, peoples as well, Tartars settled here, Germans settled here, and others as well. And so Poland at that time was known for its tolerance to other communities and partly also the, the controls on the king so that the noble families had power over how Poland was going to be run. As I said, it rather falls apart later on. So at this time, uh, you've described a city which is politically important and very wealthy. Are there still sites we can see as well as the column of the, of the buildings that visitors can enjoy? Well, the thing that we'll come to later about Warsaw is that almost all of it has been rebuilt. It was almost completely destroyed in later on in the in the Second World War, uh, and so even churches that, for example, the Mazovian dukes built the so-called German church in Warsaw, which was a sort of Gothic brick structure. It looks just like something out of uh, Lübeck or Hanover or Hamburg or Amsterdam, this type of architecture. But again, it was almost completely destroyed in the war and, and was rebuilt. So yes, we can see great many things in Warsaw that were rebuilt in exactly the style of this era, including the Warsaw Castle, which was only reopened to the public in 1981. It took that long to rebuild it after the war. So yes, we can see it, but it's not really what it was. So we had this period of success for Warsaw and growth in power in, in the 16th century. How did it fare over the next century or two into the 17th and beyond? The city itself grows. It becomes thriving, powerful capital city. And there are some lovely things that tell back to those times that still exist, like the Wajenki Palace and many, many other 
sites in the city which are a, a remnants of that era of prosperity, Renaissance and so on. The old town and the so-called new town also really mirror the prosperity, the trade, and the power of Warsaw in this time. But the problem for Warsaw and the problem for Poland generally is the growth in power of the autocratic regimes which surround it. And in the sense, Poland becomes a prisoner of her geography because you have under Peter the Great and then Catherine the Great, uh, Muscovy, now Russia, becoming very, very important. Under the Hohenzollerns, which had a very incredible succession of four male rulers in a line, none of whom were completely deranged or ill, and is particularly ending with Frederick the Great, the so-called Frederick the Great, who was, became a very powerful ruler making Prussia the quip, Mirabeau quip, was, you know, it's an army with a state, not a state with an army. And of course, the power of the Austro-Hungarian Empire under the Habsburgs is, is well known as well. And so now Poland becomes sandwiched in between these huge thriving powers. This happens at the same time that the shift in Europe from that trade in grain and the Baltic Sea and the power of the Hanseatic League and those cities and those areas and territories starts to wane in favor of the new importance of trade, overseas trade, the influence and power in Europe starts to shift to the new world effectively. And Poland and the Hanseatic League and, and these areas start to suffer very much from this. There are other issues as well. So in the 1600s, places like Germany are going through the Thirty Years' War, which is absolutely devastating. So that war ends in 1648. This is a time when Poland has prospered enormously, but all of a sudden Poland gets hit by the so-called Swedish deluge. They're attacked by Sweden, and these attacks against Poland are absolutely devastating by the Swedes. Uh, and Warsaw is sacked. All the beautiful buildings that had existed pretty well, everything is destroyed and the population is decimated. And so Poland starts this era of decline just when the three great powers around it become more and more powerful. So how does that play out with, as you say, those those powers, Prussia and, and Russia particularly, over the next hundred years or so? Well, the great tragedy for Poland is that this is the beginning of the end of Poland for 123 years. First partition of Poland is instigated particularly by Frederick the Great. And the Poles don't call him Frederick the Great, they call him Frederick II. He sort of sits back and goes, you know, that Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it's quite big, isn't it? And quite wealthy and, you know... It's also falling to pieces a little bit. The government isn't really working very well. This um, election of the Polish kings, which I'd said had been quite successful early on, now starts to become chaotic, where you've got infighting and one faction, for example, backed by the Russians against another faction backed by local nobles. And the infighting and the political intrigue starts to really become a problem for ruling Poland well. So the first partition takes place between Prussia, Austro-Hungary and, and Russia in 1772. And uh, huge swathes of territory are just sliced off and given to Russians, Prussians and Austrians. And then the Poles start to reform and they try to withstand this. One of the things that they, they come up with and are inspired by very much are the ideas of the French Revolution. They come up, for example, with a, a constitution, which after the United States is the second great constitution to be written. And this 
petrifies Catherine the Great, who is watching these changes in Poland and says, you know, we don't want these freedoms to go to the Polish people. We want them to be ruled by us effectively. So this instigates a, a second partition and then very quickly followed by the final partition of Poland which leads to, um, in 1795, Poland disappears from the map for 123 years. So this once great, incredible, mighty empire in the, in the heart of Europe, which is known for its universities and its trade and its wealth and so on, all of a sudden suffers this humiliation of being partitioned. One of the problems with partitioning is that each of these partitioning powers has its own capital city, its own language, its own transportation system, its own way of doing things. And uh, Warsaw loses its importance. And rather than Warsaw being the sort of center of Polish power and so on, power switches rather to Moscow, to Berlin, and to Vienna. And so you get over the space of these 123 years, almost three distinct areas, which later when Poland joins back together, you know, it's very, very difficult for these areas to knit back together because, as I said, transportation, the Russian railway gauge is different from the railway gauge in the German areas and all these other things. And so uh, it becomes very difficult. Another problem, of course, at this time is that particularly the Prussians and the Russians, who absolutely disdain Poland and Polish culture and so on, do things like restrict education. You're not allowed to have Polish taught in schools and, and there are restrictions on Poles buying land and, and many other things as well. And so power of, of the Poles is severely diminished by politics, but also by policies that are instigated by the occupying powers. So at this time, Warsaw is effectively an outpost of Russia for, as you say, over a century. How does it develop in that time? Or was it basically stagnating as a backwater? Well, it is a bit of a backwater, but actually the Poles do not lose their First of all, their love of their country and their love of their city. And this is something that relates to the way in which they behaved, for example, during the Second World War, also during Solidarity, also, you know, the, the time I first came to Warsaw. This spirit of the Poles and this love of freedom comes from this feeling that their capital and their country was illegitimately ripped from them. You know, that they, they knew what they were when they were powerful. They remember their imperial days. They remember what it was like to be powerful and wealthy. That that's gone into, in a way, the DNA of the country and also the DNA of Warsaw. And there were many, many people, Warsawians, who worked together with the Russians. They developed infrastructure. They developed train systems. They developed industry. So to the point that although it was an imperial capital dominated from Moscow, from St. Petersburg in those days. Warsaw did become quite a prosperous town, the most prosperous city in the Russian Empire. So it wasn't as if it was a complete backwater, but it was always politically controlled. Bearing in mind, once again, as we discussed earlier, the destruction of the Second World War, are there any sites that we can see today from that period in, in the 18th, 19th centuries? Well, there are many, the, the, for example, the university buildings on Krakowski Przedmieszcze are absolutely beautiful. And there, there's a whole area called the Royal Mile, which goes from the old town all the way up to Wajenki Park, along which the very important uh, families who are still wealthy and important in Poland build their palaces. And there are, of course, also public buildings, uh, embassies. So 
going along the Royal Mile is really the way to capture that sort of neoclassical building boom in Warsaw at this time. And these are these iconic buildings. You can, you know, the sort of classic two columns or four columns, white pillars in the front with a portico and, and, and sort of beautiful, graceful buildings that are put up at this time. The great theatre, the, the great national theatre, which becomes the largest opera house in Europe, one of the largest theatres in Europe, is built during this time. As some of the grand hotels open up, the Europejski Hotel, the Bristol Hotel, which was the most modern hotel in Europe. So, in other words, some of these innovations and developments do take place under uh, Russian rule. But nevertheless, the Poles aren't politically free, and a lot of the dynamism and the, the sorts of things that might have been created were rather kept in check by the Russian rulers. Another thing to remember is that the Poles resented the political control, and they, from time to time, had very violent uprisings against the Russians. The first was in 1830, when the sort of huge, massive rebellion began against the Russians. It was brutally crushed, and this is when you have the first massive wave of emigres, particularly to Paris. People like Sienkiewicz, the famous Polish national poet, he's kind of the Byron of Poland. And of course, the famous uh, composer Chopin, who's the national composer of, of Poland. But he ends up dying in Paris, not in Warsaw, because he's in exile. Of course, he later dictates when he dies that his heart is to be buried in Poland. So, of course, it's placed in a crypt in a, in a massive church in, in Warsaw. That urn can still be seen in, in Warsaw today. But this is a part of the sort of sadness of, of Warsaw and of Poland at this time, that they wanted their freedom, they wanted to regain their rightful place in, in Europe, and yet they weren't able to because of the control from Russia. And of course, the 20th century brought even greater tumult to, to Warsaw and Poland as a whole. How did Warsaw fare during the First World War and how did it emerge from that conflict? Poland in the First World War, actually, Warsaw didn't have a terrible World War I. It, of course, we all know that the, the dreadful fate of soldiers, for example, on the Western Front. The war in the East was equally bloody. Warsaw was taken over in 1915 by the Germans, and it wasn't devastated. It wasn't laid waste. And in fact, the Germans were considered to be quite acceptable occupiers to the extent when the Germans come back in World War II, a great many people I interviewed over the years said, well, we, we didn't think it was going to be so bad because the Germans were quite benign during World War I. They had relatively good war in Warsaw, let's put it that way, given what was going on. Of course, it was a headquarters for men and materiel moving through to the fronts and so on. But then, of course, when Russia pulls out of the war and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk comes about, Warsaw again goes into a, a, a series of relative peace. The Germans create a place called Oberost, further east, which is this kind of military territory, which is ruled by Ludendorff and other, other generals. And so, in a way, Warsaw's cushioned from the violence. It doesn't have to take part in any way, and obviously in the Russian Revolution or any of that terrible uh, domestic violence that's going on in the civil war in Russia. The most important leader to emerge from this point is Marshal Piłsudski. Piłsudski is, is a great hero in Poland because, of course, in those days during World War I, Poles had to fight for whichever side of the occupied part of Poland they happened to be born in. The Germans took uh, Warsaw. Piłsudski made a deal with them. He started. He said that he would allow his Piłsudski legions to be formed under the auspices of the Germans. But then when the World War I started to come to its final conclusion, the Germans appointed him as a kind of guardian, effectively, guardian leader of 
Poland so that there wouldn't be chaos. And Piłsudski very quickly grasped the moment and Poland was recreated at the Treaty of Versailles. Of course, this was also the recreation of a, a free Poland was one of President Wilson's 14 points. Uh, and so Poland is recreated and for the first time after 123 years arrives on the map. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we then have about two decades when Warsaw was once again capital of a united Poland. What happened in the city during that time? It grasped political power. Did it change in terms of the structure of the city? First of all, the feeling in Poland with the recreation of Warsaw as a capital of a newly reborn Poland was unbelievable. The generation that came of age at this time, from 1918 until 1939, it would do anything for their country and for their capital city. Uh, this is sort of dedication of the people who later fight in the Warsaw Uprising. And again, I interviewed many, many of them. And I at first didn't understand why were you so willing to just leap into the fray? It was because they had this sense that it's an existential fight. We're fighting for a freedom. We got it back in 1918 and we're not going to let it go again. Um, they called themselves the Columbus generation. And this was this this, this feeling of, of just doing anything they could for their city. And this is reflected in Poland in the re birth and the rebuilding of the city. Of course, first of all, all the three sections of former occupied zones have to be knitted back together. And so rail lines have to be built and, and infrastructure has to be re-established. Re and Warsaw becomes the center of all of that. So there are new districts rebuilt. There was an incredible mayor, the mayor Starszynski, who really his whole project was to make Warsaw into the thriving capital that it should have been had it not been occupied. And he starts masses of building projects, whole districts like the district of Jolibors, which is a beautiful little borough in the north, was created for three groups, the new recreated military for the journalists and, and uh, writers and, and the cultural side, and then the civil servants. So they all got this sort of social housing because they all of a sudden needed places to live because of the whole recreation of this structure. This happened all over Warsaw. So Warsaw starts to become, again, very, very important as the functioning uh, capital of 
this newly recreated state. Of course, there are many, many political problems. This is not an easy time economically. These countries have been recreated or created from the collapse of the Russian-Prussian or Russian-German and Austro-Hungarian empires. That's all very nice, but you've got to then get an economy going. You've got to find who you're trading with and everything else. There were all sorts of political problems, uh, radical groups on right and left, problems with treatment of, of national minorities. Uh, under Pilsudski, it was actually all kept in check, particularly, for example, his relationship to the Jewish population. But when Pilsudski dies in 1926, then that starts to unravel as well. So there were many, many problems. And at the same time, of course, the Poles face uh, the growing strength of Hitler's Germany from 1933 which obviously is possibly the most devastating period of history for, for Poland and Warsaw in particular. Can you outline the key moments for Warsaw from the invasion by Germany, the, the bombing, the siege, the conquest, and the Warsaw rising at the end of the war? The Poles really were shocked when all of a sudden bombs started falling on Warsaw in September 1st, 1939. This was the first terror bombing that had ever taken place of a capital city. We all knew about Guernica and, and of course, Picasso's famous painting uh, of the fact, and the, and the Germans did bomb some border towns like Veilun, which was completely destroyed. But the, the bombing of Warsaw and the siege of Warsaw takes place into September and into October 1939. And the, the people of of Warsaw are absolutely horrified because all of a sudden they've been living quite a peaceful life. They did not expect this massive onslaught by the Nazis, the siege of Warsaw. About 20% of the city was uh, damaged or destroyed by the bombing raids in, in September 1939. And this is very little known because, of course, the things that happened in Warsaw later are so much worse that this has been rather put aside. But the fact is that the Warsawians did hang on, put through the siege, and then the Nazis do finally take over the city in early October, and the Nazis put immediately in place something that they call the Abe Aktion. So the Nazis have a sort of a two-pronged attack into Warsaw and into Poland. And the most important thing, aside from the military attack, of course, and occupation, is to try and make sure they get rid of anybody who might potentially resist against the Nazis. And there were two prongs to this attack. And the, this was the creation of the Einsatzgruppe and the spe special SS killing squads. People, of course, know much more about them when they go into Russia, but they were used first in Poland. And the first thing that they do is they go after the intelligentsia, as they're called in Poland, you know, the, the educated classes. Some of them are, are murdered in places like Palmyra and so on, and Wawer, these famous execution sites. Some are taken to these new camps that are being opened, for example, Auschwitz. And then the second prong of this attack is against the Jewish population. Very deliberate attempt to divide the population of, of Warsaw into these two groups, physically divide the Jews with the creation of the Warsaw Ghetto, which begins in October 1940. It's walled in, absolutely isolating the Jewish population from the population of Warsaw. And it must be remembered that uh, over 30% of the population of Warsaw was Jewish. And the Germans tried very hard to create this sort of view in their propaganda of Jews being, you know, sort of vermin, impoverished, uh, the sort of shtetl images that the Germans like to use in their propaganda. But in fact, uh, the Jewish population in Warsaw was tremendously mixed. Yes, there were poor Jews who'd come in from somewhere else, but there was also a huge, thriving Jewish community of, uh, you know, everything 
politics, of newspapers, Jewish theatre, politicians of all stripes, from the Bund socialists to the Zionists. I mean, this huge, thriving Jewish culture, making it the second largest Jewish city in the world after New York. And the Germans were set to destroy this. So they first begin by creating the ghetto, introducing massive restrictions against the Jews. Then we see the horrific beginnings of the mass deportations of the Jews, of this 400,000 plus people are in the Warsaw Ghetto, around about 100,000 of them die of disease and starvation. But the rest are then taken on these so-called Großaktions, these huge deportations on the trains at the so-called Umschlagplatz, where they're gathered, forced onto trains and taken directly to an extermination camp called Treblinka, which was just an extermination camp. Almost nobody survived there, and over 800,000 people were murdered there in just the space of a few months. So this is ripping out one huge part of Warsaw's history, cultural life. Uh, And of course, the Jews had been present in Poland since the 1300s, so it was like losing part of the whole fabric of the city. Then the Jews who remain in the ghetto mostly young people who'd been kept back by the Germans so that they could work, decide to organize two fighting organizations, which in April 1943 rise up against the Germans and fight. It's the first large major uprising against the Germans in the history of Nazi occupation of Europe. Unfortunately, of course, it's crushed. But the Jews fighting knew that they were going to die. They went to fight with a weapon in their hand if they could get one, knowing they were going to their deaths. But as Marek Edelman, one of the, the last survivors of the Jewish fighting organization, said, we wanted to choose the time and place of our own execution, our own death, and not just be led to the slaughter, to the trains in Treblinka. So this is the, the, the tragic, tragic end of Jewish Warsaw. Jürgen Stroop, who's in command of the crushing of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, has the beautiful old synagogue, uh, which was built by the famous Polish-Italian architect Marconi, blown up and, and says that this is a great triumph for Nazism over, over the Jews. And of course, that wasn't the last uprising in Warsaw, was it? Can you talk us through the last year or so of the war and what happened in Warsaw? So Warsaw, of course, is a very important military jumping off point for the Germans who are fighting on the Eastern Front. So the Poles and the Polish Home Army and the whole underground, which at this point amounts to over 300,000 people, are very aware of what's happening. And they realize that by 1944, the great summer offensive, the Soviet summer offensive, Bagration, sees that the Red Army is sweeping in toward the pre-war Polish borders. And the Poles and the Polish Home Army start to make the mistake of thinking that the Germans are now finished because they're in Warsaw and they're seeing these bedraggled troops defeated on the Eastern Front coming through Warsaw, some of them without weapons, some with that, you know, barefoot and so on, wounded. The Poles have the gumption to get out on the streets and just wave at them, say, ha ha, we'll never see you again, with this feeling that the war is about to be over. Then, of course, there's the attack on Hitler's life by uh, Stauffenberg on the 20th of July, 1944, up in the Wolfslayer, Hitler's headquarters. And this also adds to this idea that the Germans are finished. But what the Poles don't realize is Walter Model, one of Hitler's ablest generals, has put together a counteroffensive just to the east of Warsaw. And they slam into the Red Army just at the gates of Warsaw at the end of July 1944. Now, in the meantime, the Poles have been realizing that the Red Army is not going to be their friend. In other words, it looks as if they're about to replace one 
tyrannic dictator for another one. Uh, and they feel that they have to take some sort of stand. I mean, already the Soviets have been saying that they're just lackeys of the Germans, that they were collaborators and so on. Of course, this is completely untrue. And the Poles want to show that they are going to welcome the Soviets into their city rather than just be taken over by the Soviets. So they misunderstand the, the sounds of the fighting to the east of Warsaw. They think the Soviets are just coming and about to come in over the bridges. So they begin the uprising on the 1st of August, 1944. And at the beginning, the Home Army and the, and the people of Warsaw are quite successful. They take huge swathes of the city because the Germans are really taken by surprise. But the problem is they don't have a control of things like the bridges, the airports, the main arteries through the city. And so the Germans are able to then turn it back against the Poles, going district by district by district. And there's some terrible, terrible uh, massacres that take place. For example, the Vola massacre takes place where about 30,000 men, women, and children are simply just massacred. They, they're killed in cold blood. And this carries on through the city. So Vola is taken, and then Hitler turns his sights on the old town, which is this old kind of medieval and renaissance fortress. It still has a lot of the old city walls around it. So it's very easy for the Poles to defend. So Hitler decides it's going to be just like a medieval siege. He pounds in artillery. He has a special armored train, which just pounds away at the old town. The Luftwaffe bombs it every day. And the largest mortar, the Karl mortar, is brought in to blow up the old town. And so this is why the damage in Warsaw is so horrific in these areas. The Warsaw Uprising is finally defeated after 63 days of fighting, and the remaining Poles are taken to a transit camp called Pruszkov. The whole city is completely emptied out. A lot of those people are sent then to places like Auschwitz or Ravensbrück. There's a huge chunk of them that are taken to as the last in pool of slave labor into the Reich, and then the rest are pushed out into the countryside to sort of eke out an existence as best they can. Then Hitler, who'd given the order on the night of the 1st of August to destroy all the men, women, and children of Warsaw, and then to make sure it was so-called glatlesiert, raised to the ground, sends sappers in. When men and material are so badly needed at the front, he makes the time and the effort to send sappers and teams, especially into Warsaw, to first of all loot the entire city of everything they can carry in train loads and, and lorry loads are taken back to the Reich. And then the city is blown up building by building and street by street. So which is why when you were asking earlier, are there remnants of the Dukes of Mazovia, Vasa dynasty or Sobieski rule, are any of these buildings left? Well, in the center of Warsaw on the west bank of the river, no. Everything that's there now has been rebuilt, with the exception of a few buildings that the Germans themselves were still using, like the Bristol Hotel, which was originally a brothel, and then they used it for administrative purposes. The university buildings, for example, some of them which they used as a Wehrmacht headquarters. The Soviets come into Warsaw only on uh, uh, the 17th of January 1945, which has given Hitler and his teams a very long time just to blow the city up. And so the Soviets arrive in a basically what's still a smoldering ruin. So the Soviets have come into Warsaw. It needs to be rebuilt. And of course, the whole state of Poland is, is effectively taken over and developed as a communist regime. Can you briefly talk us through that post-war period of Warsaw history? What's really amazing about Warsawians, as I said, is that they have a tremendous spirit. But Warsaw was flattened, completely destroyed and emptied of its inhabitants. And yet people loved their city. 
so much that they started to come back. Now, Warsaw was so badly destroyed that Stalin was actually talking about moving the capital to, to Łódź. But the people of Warsaw came back and by the end of 1945 had already started on their own initiative to rebuild the city. And so, for example, my, my mother-in-law, just as one example, came back and lived in a building in a, in a one single room with two walls missing, just tarpaulins on either side. And she was a student. She was studying to be a pediatrician, but she spent part of her day every day moving bricks around and, and clearing the streets and so on. And for that, they'd get a little bit of food and a small payment. But it was really done by the Poles, by the Warsawians themselves. And so there was a fight between architects and architectural styles and schools. The Soviet school was very much just flat in the place, let's build a kind of Soviet paradise. But the Warsawians themselves wanted to maintain at least something of the city. And so this is why the initiative was really started to rebuild the old, so-called old town and new town. But it's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site because although it's been completely rebuilt, it's the only World Heritage Site in the world that's actually a reconstruction. And it was done so carefully because the Poles had tremendous art historians, architects and so on who came back as well. They actually used a Bellotto, Canaletto paintings of the old town and that whole area of Warsaw to rebuild the buildings that were destroyed in their original patterns and the original colors and so on. So actually in a place like the old town, you can see that the facades are exactly as they would have been in the 17th, 18th century. Uh, but in behind the facades, there are more modern buildings with plumbing and, and electricity and all of those things that were added during the rebuilding. But if you walk into that part of Warsaw now, you think you're walking back into a, an 18th century city square. So as we know, following the Second World War, Poland and Warsaw were effectively under communist control for over five decades, and also famously, the Solidarity Movement, uh, particularly in Gdansk, was a key part of the, the overthrow of communism or the breakdown of communism in Eastern Europe. How did Warsaw emerge from that period? Warsaw was, of course, very involved and engaged in the Solidarity Movement, of course, as a centre of intellectual life, a centre for, for centuries, actually, because even under the Russians, Prussians and Austrians, the Poles had developed this way of resisting by creating effectively an alternative civil society. They did precisely the same thing under the Germans, where they created effectively uh, not only a, an underground military home army of 300,000 people, but also a complete underground state, including university education, including medical help, including social help, and so on. And the same thing happened under the communists, so that the Poles, even at, under high Stalinism, had underground organizations to, for example, help uh, people whose family members were put in Stalinist prison. Then they would help the mothers and children of, the, of those families or whatever else. And this carried on with things like the various workers' organizations. And these were organizations which surprised the, the communists because it wasn't just traditionally the intellectuals are the ones who start or students start these sorts of organizations. But in Poland, it was also the workers. It was also this attempt to try and create a trade union to, to try and band together the working classes. Well, of course, the communist system was based on the propaganda about the working classes. And so this turned communism on its head a little bit. And the, the communist government didn't quite know how to respond. Of course, we see this extraordinary rise of Lech Wałęsa's solidarity movement. Uh, in 1981, General Jaruzelski tried to crush it by, again, imprisoning dozens of people in Warsaw who were seen to be a threat. But it didn't work in the end. In the end, the changes that were taking place 
in world politics, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Mitterrand, Helmut Kohl in the West, fundamentally, of course, Gorbachev in the Soviet Union, who starts to introduce reforms. And the Poles are able to take advantage of this because Gorbachev is already saying, well, you know what, as long as we don't lose East Germany, we can allow the Poles and these other countries in between a little bit more leeway. So there were big political cracks starting to show in the whole structure that had kept communism in place behind the Iron Curtain since 1945. Solidarity was one of the most important movements that starts to push at this armor. But this combination of what's going on in the Soviet Union, what's going on with the leaders in the West, and the changes behind the Iron Curtain as well, then finally lead to this amazing moment in 1989 when the roundtable talks begin in what's now the presidential palace in Warsaw. It's accepted that the Poles are going to be allowed to field their own candidates for certain seats in the parliament, not everything, of course. And of course, elections take place and Solidarity wins every single one. Well, with one exception, who's, a, who's an independent, but he's a Solidarity guy anyway. So they win 100% of the seats they're allowed. The communist government crumbles. Lech Wałęsa becomes the first post-communist spiritual leader of Poland, effectively. I mean, just an enormously important political figure, uh, government structures put in place. And then, and then we see the communist government start to crumble all over Central Europe. And of course, in the three decades or so since then, Warsaw has developed to become a, a modern, vibrant, commercial, cultural hub. As you said, so much of its past was lost and reconstructed. I'd like to ask you if you can select five sites for travellers to Poland today to visit, to give them some insights into the history we've just talked about. Well, the first place I would say to go is to the old town and new town, because this is something I've already talked about, but it's it's just such an extraordinary symbol. Uh, and, the, and the Warsaw Castle, the symbol of the rebirth of Warsaw, it's known as the Phoenix City. It's now bustling, thriving. It's a wonderful, vibrant, optimistic place to go. Now, on a summer's day, it's, it's packed with people, just simply wonderful. But a second place as a counterweight to that would be the Palace of Culture, which has reluctantly become a symbol of Warsaw as well. And this is this enormous, gigantic structure, kind of a skyscraper, 1950s, uh, built by Stalin as a quote-unquote gift to the people of Warsaw. But of course, it was a, a stamp of Soviet might and power. And there was a great debate after the collapse of communism in 1989 as to whether or not it should be ripped down. But a lot of people remembered events there. There's their theatres, their, their sports halls, their uh, universities even, and so on. And people said, you know, well, I used to go swimming there with my with my dad. I, I don't want it to go. And also it was, would have been just a huge cost to rip it down. It was a gigantic building modelled on the Seven Sisters in, in Moscow, same buildings. And also there were amazing things that had happened in this building. So, for example, the, the Soviets um, had not allowed rock music under the Soviet system in, in Poland because rock music was a degenerate Western thing. But they decided to do an experiment in the 1960s and allowed the Rolling Stones to come. But they only gave tickets to the sons and daughters of the party elite, thinking that they would behave themselves. Well, of course, Mick Jagger starts starts singing. The, the, the kids get out, start dancing around, rip all the seats out. Then Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones go around outside in their, in their open-top cars, handing out albums and so on, because they were angry that only the party 
bigwigs kids had been allowed in the concert. And of course, the Soviets say, okay, that's it. You know, they'd brought all sorts of specialists to watch this, this ex- cultural experiment. Of course, it failed miserably and they banned rock concerts until the next one that was allowed was ABBA because the Swedes made a deal because they built it a hotel in the middle of Warsaw. And uh, one of the one of the sort of tit for tat things was that, well, if ABBA can play, then then, then we'll we'll come and open it. So people remember these things about the Palace of Culture. Uh, another part of Warsaw that I think is absolutely wonderful was the other side of the river, Praga, which wasn't destroyed so badly because it didn't go through this this total destruction ordered by Hitler. And it was a very poor part of the city in the pre-19th century, early 20th century, a lot of factories and, and warehouses and so on. But of course, these are now being repurposed. There's a very famous vodka museum surrounded by new bars, restaurants in these old warehouses, which is wonderful. And many art galleries and pop-ups and, and clubs and this sort of thing. So it's a wonderful hub. And, and, and Warsaw's counterintuitive because, for example, I think it's got the largest percentage of vegan restaurants per capita than anywhere in Europe. People think of Poland and they think of sort of stodgy pork loins and pierogies and so on. But that's not the case. That exists as well. But uh, Warsaw is a very, very vibrant, youthful, forward-looking, innovative city. And that's really reflected in in that district of Praga and I would say around the Vodka Museum and, and so on. Another place that that I love and Warsawians love is the Wajenki Park, which is a beautiful old palace that wasn't destroyed. Hitler was going to use it at his palace when he came to Warsaw, so it was kept. But it's a gorgeous, gorgeous park. There's botanical gardens there as well. And the thing that's so lovely is that every uh, Sunday in the summer, there are two free Chopin concerts that are given under the very famous statue of Chopin there, which is just absolutely lovely and a wonderful place to go. And then finally, I would go to the former ghetto. When I first came to Warsaw, there was absolutely no mention of Jewish life in the city officially, because under the Soviets, there was no Holocaust. Everybody was a victim of fascism. And what happened to the Jews was as bad or not as bad as what happened to anybody else. And so there wasn't a real involvement in or concentration on in the history of, of the specific suffering of Polish Jews, Jews in general in occupied Europe. So when I first went to the former ghetto, which was this once thriving center of Jewish life, there was almost nothing to show for it, except for this sort of monument by Rappaport commemorating the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and, and a few monuments to the, the Umschlagplatz, the, the, the amazing uh, Jewish cemetery in Warsaw was still intact, but all grown over in a ruin. And since then, the awareness, particularly amongst the younger generation, of this tremendous history in Warsaw has come to light. And the centerpiece of that is the Pauline Museum, which won European Museum of the Year some six or seven years ago. Absolutely magnificent. And it's become not only is it an amazing museum showing the whole history of Warsaw Jewish life and Polish Jewish life, but also has become a center for seminars and exhibitions and and talks and dialogue and and different meeting points. And it's just absolutely wonderful showing the rebirth of, of course, it's a very, very small Jewish community now compared to what it was before, but the willingness and and understanding amongst particularly young Warsawians of what was lost and and the attempt to try and and get this back and celebrate this as as, as much as possible, rather than only commemorating the, the Holocaust. 
Finally, Alex, could you share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to Warsaw? Oh, well, that's that's uh, all good news because Warsaw is cheap <laughs> compared to other European cities. I mean, uh, I, I go back and forth to the UK a lot, go to London, come back and live a month in Warsaw on what I spent one day in London practically. I mean, it's, it's very inexpensive. It's very, very safe. Many, many English speakers, again, the younger generation since 1989, people no longer have to learn Russian. They all learn English. So pretty well anywhere you go, if you go into a bar or to a hotel, whatever, everybody will speak to you in English. So it's, it's a, and it's a, a very green, pleasant city to walk around in. So there's, of course, very sad, tragic history here. But the, the vibe, the energy in Warsaw is also very open-minded and forward-looking. And it's just a fun wonderful city. And the first impression is a sort of higgledy-piggledy city with some skyscrapers and, and some old communist buildings and some rebuilt old towns and, and so on. It doesn't really make sense architecturally. And so people often prefer to go to somewhere like uh, Prague or Krakow because they're intact and beautiful cities. But Warsaw has an energy, I would say, as a capital of Poland that's uh, very hard to beat as a visitor. That was Alex Ritchie. Her book, Warsaw 1944, The Fateful Uprising, published by HarperCollins, is available now. Thanks, Alex, and thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.